Okay, uh, welcome, Trillbillies, to the uh, show this week. We are joined by, I think, the largest guest panel we've ever assembled. Man, we really got a murderer's row here. <laughs> it's like, I love it. It's I've, I've, just, I've been trying to add more and more guests over time so that I could talk less. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to uh, engineer a situation where we have at least twenty guests on at one time, and I just have to say one or two things here and there. Uh, so, you know, given that we're already w- heading one step in the right direction, um, this week uh, we've assembled our panel to discuss the ongoing situation at West Virginia University. It is an interesting situation. Um, I, you know, and a lot of the things I've read about it, I think this is kind of by design. I haven't really seen a lot of discussion uh, with regards to the state's role in what has happened. It seems like the the uh, one of our main characters here, antagonists, I, I keep calling in my head, I keep calling him G. Gordon. No way to talk Liddy. about Coach Huggins, but. Yeah, yeah, this Coach Huggins too. Yeah, one day, one day Bob Huggins gets a DUI. <laughs> the next day, they want to cancel the humanity. <laughs> like I, we have been covering the Bob. We've been covering the Bob Huggins thing on our show for several months now, and so it's like now you got this like other thing. You've got a uh, a another criminal with a name, sort of like G Gordon Liddy, but uh, E Gordon D. Um. <laughs> who uh, is also a, a new character in this. So, um, so yeah, so before we start, though, before we get into it, I just want to have you go around and introduce yourselves. Um, I was going to do that for you, but uh, as I have pointed out, I'm trying to sp- talk less. So, And plus, you know, you don't want me representing you to the audience. You want to represent yourself. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Bethany, why don't we start with you and, uh, you know, you could pass it off to whoever. I'm Bethany Winters. I am um, <laughs> I'm a third generation WVU student and I'm from Clarksburg, West Virginia. Um I in the Masters of Public History program and I work at the West Virginia Regional History Center and I'm a member of West Virginia United Student Union and West Virginia Campus Workers. And I put in my little bio thing, I became interested in labor organizing after years of working terrible customer service jobs and (laughs) reading about unions and history books. So I'm really glad that I can actually get involved with something now. Yeah, that's that's how we all start out there. You know, you get screamed at by more than one customer and you're like, man, fuck this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, All right. uh, We'll go to Glenn now. Thanks. Uh, I'm Glenn Taylor. Um, I was born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia, and then left the state for about 18 years. Um, Lived in Ohio, then Austin, Texas, and then Chicago for nine years, where I had my first teaching job at a large community college in northwest suburban Chicago. But uh, while I was there, uh, published first two of my four novels. Um, all of them take place in West Virginia. The first one was The Ballad of Trenchmouth Taggart that came out in 2008. Um, and then my most recent one uh, just came out in March and it's called The Songs of Betty Bache. 
Um, I did not go to WVU, but both my parents did. They met here. Um, nice. My mom is from Fairmont and my dad is from Matewan in Mingo County. So I, got, I know my labor history pretty well. Um, in fact, had some family involvement. My grandma, Lena, was a Chambers. Uh, so her cousin was Ed Chambers, who, of course, was shot and killed on the Walsh County Courthouse steps alongside Sid Hatfield. Wow. Um, and in fact, a lot of material in my books, you know, um, cover things like what came to be known as the mate one massacre and battle. And then, and then you know, the following year battle of Blair mountain. So, um, yeah, I got some skin in the game, raising my family here. You know, we, we moved back, had, uh, we had three kids while we were living in Chicago and then we moved back here in 2011. So I've been teaching undergraduates and graduates, um, through our, you know, our creative writing track in the English department and through our MFA program, um, for 13 years now. And, um, I've, I've, uh, I've been enlightened and I was a little more hopeful and optimistic when we came back in 2011 about a lot of things for my home state. I'm used to having the love hate relationship as I'm sure Bethany and Christian are as well. Um, Bethany, do you know Jalen Lant from Clarksburg? She was one of my students. She, she? she's a singer songwriter and a, uh, and uh, a great writer, but now she's actually a reporter for WBOY. So when the students had the walkout, um, she was actually the one who interviewed me. You know, one of my former creative writing students has literally oh, interviewed yeah. me on my thoughts about the discontinuation of all these programs. And she had tears in her eyes, actually. It was it's quite moving. So um, I'm here to follow the students and uh, and have their back. They sure seem to have ours. So I'm seeing a lot of solidarity as of late great um christian we'll go to you next my name is christian Rowe, fifth generation wvu uh graduate um <laughs> um and i'm a history master's student currently as well as a substitute teacher in uh, monongalia county public schools uh where i worked last year um as a long-term sub at university high school um i graduated from WVU with my history BBA in 2019. Um, I'm from Malden, West Virginia, down in the southern part of the state in, in Kanawha County, up the river from, from Charleston a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, to be involved with, uh, with WVU Students United after sort of reading about labor resistance in, uh, in, in my home state all my life, but, but sort of you know, losing faith a little bit in in the way that that militancy was sort of going uh, by the wayside in West Virginia, um, and uh, so yeah, I'm glad to be keeping that tradition alive. Nice, Dennis. Yeah, so my name's Dennis Hogan. I'm the uh, lone non-WVU uh, person on the panel, so I just want to say thanks so much for for letting me crash the party. Um, I am a postdoc at Haverford College outside Philadelphia. Um, and uh, even though my work, uh, my PhD work was on uh, Central American literature in the 19th century, I got involved in union organizing um, at Brown University. I, um, you know, helped form the union there, sort of led to me developing uh, an interest in sort of the conditions of contemporary higher education labor, finance, governance, all of these issues um, and how they affect institutions kind of throughout the higher ed 
ecosystem. Uh, I've also been a local union political director and uh, community activist. So um, yeah, happy to add whatever I can in the way of context. Great. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's Tom and I, who are also not WV students. Uh, I am a graduate of the great esteemed University of Texas. And, uh, with, you know, Texas is also a state that is um, there's been several interesting like battles over education there. The most recent one was Texas A&M, where the president was recently basically ousted. That president is from our county. Uh, in Letcher <laughs> County, Kentucky, which is very strange. Um, and then uh, Tom is a graduate of Moorhead State, which Tom is the school you graduated from uh, even accredited anymore. Uh, uh, my department's definitely not. And that makes sense. But they, they've they've uh, you and Steve Inskeep, NPR Steve Inskeep. <laughs> That's yeah, me and Steve Inskeep. They were like and, they uh, Monty Hall. No, not Monty Hall. What's the guy's name? The game show host, uh, Bob Barker, recently. Oh, right wing dude. He's like the right wing dude now. <laughs> I don't. I feel like a lot of game show hosts are tend towards right wing. But, <laughs> anyways, I'm getting off topic. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk. Uh, let's first like let's talk about like what's going on at WVU. So earlier this month, they proposed a series of budget cuts. Um, to winnow down several different programs, to completely shutter one program, uh, to let go X number of faculty. This is kind of the culmination of a larger plan, I think, that Guy called, was it academic transformation? Was that what it was? Yeah. Um, so I don't know which one of you wants to kind of like get into the specifics of the cuts that they're uh, proposing and again, I guess we have to point out that these are proposed cuts. They've not been accepted yet, but they are doing this on the basis of a, what, like $45 million hole in their budget? Thereabouts, 43, 45, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, yep. So, yeah, so I don't know which one of you uh, would like to kind of like get into the numbers of that. Um but I think it'd be interesting to kind of, uh, you know, just explore a little bit like the scope of what we're looking at here. I can start. Yeah, go for um, it. So I think part of the reason for our budget deficit is the state legislature. Um, I don't know if you saw the the state of West Virginia has a billion dollar budget surplus this year. But for some reason, they wouldn't put any money into our state flagship university. Um, so that's part of the reason for it. Um, I think administrative mismanagement is another reason. But they're proposing to cut at least 12 programs. I wrote down here. Tell me if that number's wrong, yeah. um, including 132 faculty. Yeah, and completely shuttering the world languages uh, program, and there's even cuts to math. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like, there's some, there's been some interesting. I don't say it's amusing, but it is kind of amusing just the way that they like tried to uh, spin this. Uh, you know, as an aside, the the 
guy who's basically doing all this is this insufferable. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get you guys in trouble or anything. I shouldn't editorialize. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry. We're going to get in trouble for what you say. I've already <laughs> yelled at him in person. He's got one of those T Boone Pickens ass names. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a T. You're right. T Boone's you know, Pickens you, ass you know name. You know you got an evil motherfucker on your hands. It's like initial <laughs> something, something, and it sounds like Foghorn Leghorn or some shit. <laughs> and he's wearing a bow tie. Like never trust ah. a guy in a bow tie, man. That's. I, I just want to add here that uh, one great fact about Guy is that when he was at OSU, there was a sixty-four thousand dollar bow tie and bow tie accoutrements budget. <laughs> so that also, included not the just bow ties. Pickens. There you go. Not just <laughs> bow ties, bow tie pins, bow tie shaped cookies. There's oh, a whole my. sort of bow tie cult around this guy, <laughs> paid for with public money. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm a quirky guy. Uh-huh. Uh, I've made my living uh, being quirky, and uh, and uh, I think that I, I, I don't uh, play well in a tightly uh, orchestrated environment. I was truly the first nerd. I say jokingly, but it's not so jokingly. You know, the reason I wear a bow tie is the fact it's much more difficult to hang me if you're a faculty member with a bow tie than with a long tie. It's just, I hate his, um... I hate his prose too, like the way he talks, like his rhetoric. Like he, there was one quote that he had that I wrote down, which was, uh, "I love seeing cranes sprout up on our campus like spring daffodils, heralding rebirth and renewal." Because the university that is not renewing itself is a university that is wilting and withering. Uh, fucking yeah. thinks he's Shelby Foot or something, doesn't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and also the. The um, there was a remark about content generation too that basically they were going to be shifting away from, for example, like the languages program, maybe outsourcing it to an app or other universities departments, and that this would be the way to generate content. And I just have to say that, like, as someone whose job it is to generate content, you don't want that to be the way you're teaching. <laughs> <laughs> you know what guys like me firing off the hip about world language I, I got a is this sort of like i mean i know there's a lot of things afoot and this is a gross oversimplification but is this sort of like uh just like an extreme ratcheting up of the we need to move to stem stuff that like only that we've just heard for the last 10 or 15 years and then some cowboy over here has finally pulled the trigger and it has implications for all y'all's lives and by extension, us. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, some people in the student union were talking, you know, um, the administration has all these numbers about how they determine which programs to cut um, based on enrollment, but like they're not counting the people taking classes who aren't majoring in it. But anyway, some of us were thinking that you know, maybe they just decided which programs they wanted to cut because it didn't fit into their vision for the economy and came up with the reasoning for it afterwards. Uh, yeah, and I would add... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Christian. I was going to say, yeah, to, to speak to that, I mean, um, um, I think literally today, like this morning, a few hours ago, there was a statement released from Eric Tarr uh, in the state legislature where he straight up said he's like i love this vision for wvu we need to we need to create degree programs that create jobs that's that is that's the reasoning um um 
I think probably for the state legislature withholding, or at least one of the reasons for the state legislature withholding that that billion dollar surplus um, is it is some sort of ideological attack against um, uh, humanities and things like that. But many things factor in as well to them withholding that billion dollar surplus, including tax cuts and various things like that. So, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think we want to minimize, um, you know, all of these culminating factors that are kind of forming in a perfect storm right now. Um, and I'm sure Dennis can probably speak more to this than I can uh, based on his experience, but I'm trying to catch up pretty quick and I'm reading things. I would encourage listeners to definitely check out Dr. Lisa Corrigan. Um, she has written quite a bit about this. And then I would also recommend uh, that they check out our former student, um, Maya Helm. That's yeah. M-Y-Y-A. She wrote a great piece in Slate. And Corrigan has a really nice piece out in the nation called The Evisceration of a Public University. But, you know, to, to just add a little bit to what Bethany and Christian are talking about, um, this RPK group who was hired uh, as an outside consultant to do this academic restructuring, they've got their hand in quite a few universities and it's growing. And of course it'll go to Kentucky next. And then Arkansas, all my friends at UK and university of Arkansas, you know, they're always, they're always texting me right now because as Corgan points out this, this consultant work that, that, you know, universities are paying anywhere between 800,000, which is about what WVU paid RPK group, which is a really lousy organization. Just look up the resumes of their principal people i learned a long time ago that if you want to spot a rich asshole that's lazy you just ask them what they're into and they say consulting yeah and that's that's, <laughs> that's really true. kind of the tale it's like yeah i just didn't want to get a fucking job and right uh, my last name is not roosevelt or alshenklaus and so <laughs> that's that i i totally agree <laughs> and the, and you can tell when you look at this rpk group you know you, it doesn't take a genius go just go to their site and um and what they're trying to do is, I think, dovetail, as Corrigan points out, with this, you know, what people are calling, quote unquote, war on woke. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of these programs that are being targeted, like mine, like world languages, these are uh, the students in these programs tend to be more diverse than the typical college student. Um, and I think that, you know, this decimation of liberal arts is is all of a piece with like this attempted uh, not only splitting of the electorate and keeping those rich who are rich and those, but, but also it's part of white supremacy, in my opinion. Um, it's all of a piece and I am, I'm kind of seeing it now. Like I said, I'm, I'm learning it on the go and that that's why I think that something like losing my job for speaking out because they had to sign these fucking yellow dog contracts, like back in the mining times, you know, we will not speak against our master. You know, we will not join the union. Um, that's a joke. And, uh, it's unconstitutional for one thing. And the, and you never think your enemy is going to be the very institute of higher <laughs> learning that that, it, that you came home to be employed by, you know. So it's it's pretty extreme. I don't know if Dennis is seeing some of those connections, too, but it's it's frightening stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to I'll try to just lay out a couple of quick things and be happy to expand on anything, you know, that, that you all want to pick up on. But, you know, I'd say you're right to suggest that what's going on at West Virginia is a culmination of some stuff that's been in the works uh, across higher ed, especially public ed, higher ed for a long time. And so, you know, I've said to a, a couple of folks in conversation, you know, that that um, 
because it's happening at West Virginia, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen everywhere, but that anything that happened there could happen anywhere. And so there's kind of three factors that are really determinative about like the, the, the economic problems that the school finds itself in. And they're real. Like, I don't want to say, you know, that they're completely made up. I think it is, you know, a pretty classic case of like disaster capitalism or shock therapy, right? Like use a crisis um, to ram through a pre-existing vision that further concentrates um, the wealth and power of the already wealthy and powerful. Um, but, you know, so one of them is the declining state um, funding, like Bethany said, right? So when Gordon Gee was president of West Virginia in 1981, he, he said himself, the state funded 70% of um, the school's budget directly out of state appropriations. Now that number is 13%. And that's been a combination of outright cuts, as well as um, just refusing to raise the appropriation as, you know, with inflation and with rising budgets. So that's the first factor. The second factor is um, declining enrollments, um, which again, are real. You know, I mean, in general, nationwide, there are going to be fewer college students as, you know, the, um, the millennial baby boom, the echo baby boom subsides. Um, it's also especially true in a place like West Virginia, which suffers from outmigration and hasn't invested enough in, you know, um, primary and secondary education to produce the high school graduates that are going to go on to college, right? You compare, you add into that the fact that, you know, international enrollments are down in part, you know, as a result of the pandemic, in part as a result of the immigration policies um, of the federal government, in part as a, a result of sort of fear around, like, where the country's heading. And folks are like, well, maybe if I have the opportunity to study in a different country, I will. Um, and then you're competing for a smaller pool of out-of-state residents who are going to pay higher tuition. Um, the last thing I'll say is that another important factor here is that West Virginia went on a bond-funded building spree. Uh, and a lot of colleges did this, right? Money got really, really cheap uh, over the last decade, and especially over the last few years. Uh, as interest rates, you know, bottomed out, went negative. A lot of schools looked at that and said, this is a great opportunity to raise a lot of capital, to undertake capital projects, building projects, real estate acquisition projects. Um, so West Virginia University built a bunch of new buildings, but it also acquired a whole campus um, and added literally hundreds of millions of dollars to its debt load that then increased its, you know, yearly debt payments. Um which meant that, you know, they're going to have to undertake some form of cuts to maintain the bond rating, which is important for university. Um, and so all of these things kind of happened at once. And, you know, from my conversations with both faculty members and, and you know, folks who've been watching this, it seemed like it happened really quickly. Right. So last year in November, they were saying it's going to be a 13 million dollar hole. Then they were saying, actually, it's going to be a 20 million dollar hole. Actually, it's going to be a 35 million dollar hole. Then the state legislature went and increased uh, contributions for the state employee health care, uh, which made it a $45 million hole. And now, you know, we're here. So I do think there is an element of ideological attack, but there is also an element of let's find a business plan that works. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of reasons, I'd be happy to talk about, you know, the business you think is going to work is not going to work also. Like, it's also a bad plan. Well, I think we can't let Coach Huggins off the hook either. If West Virginia would have made a Final Four since 2009, that enrollment problem might not have <laughs> existed. He was the largest 
pay the um he did have the highest pay at the university. Uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's probably. Pro- I think that's probably universally. <laughs> Either the football yeah. or basketball coach is usually the highest paid state employee at most places. <laughs> four, yeah, he was getting close to four and a half million. I can't tell if that's before or after the DUI, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like you mentioned this building spree, Dennis, and something that I had read you. Like you've got a piece coming out in the Baffler soon about this, and there's a particular paragraph in your piece that I found very interesting, which was about Reynolds Hall, and Maya Hell mentions it in her piece for Slate too. So, and Christian, you're nodding. Did you did you live there? <laughs> no, it's a it's 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 like the new business school. I mean, there's oh, business God. school, but but there's a, there's a lot of different stuff in there. I, I think they have a gym, um, all, all sorts of, of stuff, and it it is just the symbol. Every single day I pass that hall, and it is it is the shining symbol of the issue here. There's also like you know they're redoing the sidewalks next to it all around it. That whole area is just a, a constantly moving construction. It is the same thing at UK, too. Like, it's all yeah. centered around the business school, and now they're building this Jim Beam Institute, like, where <laughs> kids can come major in bourbon, I guess. Like, <laughs> dude, and, like, they're getting all these sort of, like, yeah, like, fancy stuff, and then you go look at, I don't know, the English department or something, and, you know. Yeah. It's it's Tom, Tom, you got to know this, too. Uh, this Reynolds Hall, which, of course, is named after um, – What's his name? Robert Reynolds. He's on yeah. the board. You know, he lives in Massachusetts. Uh, donated a lot of money, uh, right? Clarksburg originally. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he he donated ten million for this hundred million dollar building. And Tom, you'll be glad to know that they raised to the ground. They tore down the house that Jerry built to build it and Hot Rod Hunley. That's what they tore down. The place that was called the Field House when my parents were in school here, where they saw Hot Rod Hunley play, where they saw Jerry West play, where I took my kids to play because I met a guy that, you know, they housed like ROTC and philosophy there when I first took the job here. And this uh, nice lieutenant was kind enough to give me the combination to the lock that opened the steel door to get out on those basketball courts. And I would literally take my three kids out there and the pot lights would come on, boom, 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 yeah. We'd play basketball. And then within, you know, a few years, it was like, sorry, we're tearing this down and we're building the Reynolds hall. And it's, it's, it's just as Christian says, it, my oldest told me, you got to go in there, dad. They've got an Einstein bagels. They got this. They got, I'm like, I'll never step foot in that. Fucking no, you don't place. understand the NBA logo played there. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, somebody correct me, please. If, if you know this off the top of your head and I'm wrong, but I believe that's where the NBA logo photo was taken. I really? think. That might I be think. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, it's a good, good, uh, you know, the chances would be high. I mean, all the home games were there. I, I just want to read Gordon Gee's statement about the Reynolds uh, the business and economic school, the Reynolds Hall, you know, again, his classic sort of cringe prose about everything. Everything he says is just kind of like it kind of is like the Anthony Oliver guy. It's like it's very obviously like created <laughs> in a lab somewhere. Uh, he says it sounds this- like Gilbert Dautry from King of the Hill. <laughs> what it sounds like. <laughs> he says this facility is a laboratory for creative thinking it's not a building we do not build buildings at our university we build ideas and turn them into reality i just want to go on to point out like what dennis wrote here in his article said some highlights of the building designer the hayhurst ideation hub 
A room supported by a single pillar with a capacity of 66 where students can brainstorm or make a formal business plan presentation. The Hollyman's social stairwells transforms getting from one floor to another by adding collaborative spaces similar to Googleplex's social stairs. The Roll Capital Market Center is equipped with stock tickers, Bloomberg terminals that expose students to real-time financial data. Uh, just, just how stock tickers create to create or put, contribute to creativity is um, not entirely <laughs> clear to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say, and you know, I'll defer to those who've actually been inside it, but you know, the, a lot of these details were re reported by the the West Virginia Metro News. They went along on this tour with the uh, with the state lawmakers from the House of Delegates to to check out the new hall with you. But yeah, I mean, like this idea that getting from one floor to another is an opportunity to transform. You know, we need to rethink. We need to rethink getting from one floor to another. You know, <laughs> stairs, escalators, ele elevators. Forget about it, man. Like we're transforming it. Um, and then this the stock ticker thing, right? It's like complete magical thinking where yeah. it's like, oh yeah, you know, like if we just create it, it's like a it's like a stage set for being good at business. Like if we just create uh as an environment where people can watch numbers go by really fast then they'll probably get good at business somehow yeah a lot of this and and you know and the stage that thing is important right because what is it about it's about attracting investment it's about attracting business leaders it's about bringing folks through to show this off as a centerpiece with the hope that you know we can spend money to make money we can you know create something that and you know there's part of it that's like probably realistic like yeah, business leaders are going to come by and be like, wow, you know, that must be a really impressive place. But then there's also a lot of it that is just like, you know, uh, dress for the job you want, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like, well, we're not Google. Google's never going to move to Morgantown, but we can build something that looks like a Google campus and hope that a little bit of that Google shine rub rubs off on us. That's that's the thinking. When I walk through Reynolds Hall, it's mostly empty. <laughs> <laughs> they spend all this money to look nice, but there's nothing that actually helps students in there. There are many buildings. Yeah, many buildings like that on, on yeah. this. I went, I spent some time at, um, where was that? It, I think it was University of Charleston at Beckley. And it was a lot like that. I was, I was there for this thing and it was like, presumably while students were on campus and they had all these like nice new buildings, but nobody was in them. It was like a Potemkin village or something. But like, you know, whatever. I, anyway, sorry. But <laughs> well, my... right. Ask, ask folks in Montgomery and Beckley how they feel about what WVU and Gee have done to to their campus. And you're right. I mean, it's yeah. You know, I I um. It, there's just some interesting things here. I had read in an article this morning, actually. So like um, a few years or a few months ago. Western Kentucky University um, started rolling out plans to basically shutter its folklore program, which is one of the most like renowned folklore pro programs in the United States. This news came out the same week that news came out that Western Kentucky paid one DJ Diesel, who is also Shaquille O'Neal. DJ Diesel is DJ Diesel is Shaquille O'Neal's, uh, you know, mon creative moniker. Um, they paid him, I think, nearly two hundred thousand dollars to do like an ox chord DJ set or something. And I thought about the same thing with regards to WVU because I saw an article about Welcome Week, 
on WVQ, WVU campus. They um they featured American Idol winner Chase Beckham, pop group Drive, Driver Era, Disney star Ross Lynch, and Flo Rida. Um, so I guess my question is to uh you know Bethany Christian and, and Glenn, do you feel like your needs are being met um uh, with the uh performance of Flo Rida? You know, or is the what's the campus climate like? Hey, let's take the temperature on Flo Rida. <laughs> no, no, I'll say no to Flo Rida because I already saw him in Charleston, West Virginia, like a month ago. He's just wow. he's just doing a West Virginia tour right now, and it's it's oh. it's too. Well, I think that's the the question. I'm I guess. The larger question here is like, what is the impact this has had on campus, like the budgetary cuts? Do you feel like you are more like, I guess, okay, there's two questions here. What what are, because like there were protests on campus last week. So like, what are faculty and students doing to push back against these? And then I guess the other question is, is have you noticed any pushback against your pushback? Have you noticed any attempts to curtail your ability to criticize this? First first question, Glenn, do you want to talk about the yellow dog contract thing? Because you mentioned it, but you didn't really explain it. I kind of of just didn't pay any attention to it. You know, the Board of Governors has been running wild for the last, I don't know how long, just here's a new clause. You know, it'll literally come out in e-news to all of us. Here's a new clause in the Board of Governors, um, you know, rules. And and it'll say something like, I will not speak out against West Virginia University. Um, I will not tarnish its image. So you you had to sign your year-to-year contract uh, if you didn't want to be offered, you know, the door in, in the year's time, you had to sign that. Um, I of course knew I wouldn't pay any attention to it and I would speak my mind, but the reason Bethany brings up the yellow dog contract, that's what miners used to call the, the contracts that they would have to sign before they went to work for the coal company that pledged they wouldn't join the union. Some people called them yaller dog contracts. Um, <laughs> and so there's that, I would say in answer to your questions, you know, the students, I, they came out with over 300 strong, I would say, in front of the Mountain Lair, which is our student center. It was one of the biggest, you know, I've been to a lot of protests on this campus over my time here. That was one of the largest ones and definitely the loudest. Um, as far as pushback to our pushback, well, and I should say I was probably the only faculty member who spoke there, but they didn't want a lot of faculty members speaking. Um, this is student led. I, I also neglected to say I am a dues paying member of the West Virginia Campus Workers Union, which is a wall to wall union started last year, mainly by graduate students and a lot of them in the MFA program. Yeah. I started paying dues last year, you know, to join the AFT against our paying dues just because I wanted to support them and stuff like these new, you know, we were out protesting last spring for these new Stevis fees. I think they're called an extra $500 a semester for any international grad student who wants to study at West Virginia university. You know, what kind of message is that sending to the international community? I mean, and so the the only pushback I've seen is that the DA, our, our student paper, interviewed Guy after the student protests. And once again, he just puts his foot in his mouth and 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 says things like, well, when asked about the complete decimation of world languages, well, we'll take that five point nine million we saved there and put it into forensics, which completely exposes that this isn't really totally about a budget crisis. Yeah. And so I don't really see much pushback to the pushback. And it's the same old story in West Virginia. You hear all this stuff like we're giving the people of West Virginia what they asked for. Finally, no, you're giving dumbasses like tar what he asked for. Yeah. And these people want to kill 
public education in the state of West Virginia. We've seen it. You know, you all remember the teacher strike in 2018. That was a wildcat strike. You don't mess. And that's that started with the Mingo County teachers. Um, and we don't have that's- that. Here. You know, I'm one of the few faculty members in the 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 union. But and so I'm not going to pretend that we're going to you know have some big walkout. But it's it's a lot of misinformation coming. And um, and I don't sense, you know, my parent, my dad is pissed. He graduated law school here, undergrad here. Everybody's pissed that I talk to. They, they think it's um, terrible. Uh, the campus workers uh, does not have the right to collective bargaining because the 2018 teacher strike, the legislature outlawed uh, collective bargaining for public employees. Wow. Yep. Can you imagine the change in a state from what West Virginia once was in terms of yeah movements compared to what it is now? Well, the the article you mentioned earlier, Christian, about Tar, Eric Tar, the um, <laughs> multiple times he's referring to the um, what the teachers' union. I can't remember the name of it, but basically calling them uh, is it the NEA? He talked talk, calling them like socialist. Oh, um, a union or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. AFT, American Federation of Teachers. Yeah. He, yeah. Notice he also listed, like he lists ACLU, AFT, all of these. Yeah. He's calling socialists. And then he just lists like LGBTQ. Yeah. Like he thinks that's like a professional <laughs> organization. I mean, this guy, don't put me in a room with him because he said a lot of worse stuff than this about it. Because we have a whole lot of others. We have trans kids being, they're coming after them in our state right now, yeah. like so many other places. They're they're running the whole right-wing Christian fundamentalist white supremacist playbook, in my opinion. And, you know, a lot of us will not stand for it. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like, so education is kind of the arena that this is all playing out on. You see it everywhere from DeSantis to, uh, like I was just mentioning earlier, Greg Abbott in Texas, Bevin. I think when Bevin, when Matt Bevin was governor of Kentucky, I think he said something like, we're not going to pay for French um, studies anymore or something like that. Uh, Which is funny because there's like a verse, you know, Versailles, Kentucky. It's like, (laughs) So, yeah, I, I've, I've tried to make that joke before, but, you know, I think you have to be a Kentuckian to be able to say it to get the show. Yeah, you, you live. Yeah, he lives in Louisville. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, this this is an interesting thing. I because like we I think a tension that we've kind of highlighted in this episode so far is trying to tease out how much of this is ideological versus how much of it is like driven by crisis budget demands. I I don't think that it, in a weird way, there's there may not even be that much of a difference between those two things. Obviously, ideology feeds into crisis and crisis feeds into ideology. Um, there is an element of there is an element of universities not wanting to put investment into humanities programs just because they won't bring back the same return on investment as a STEM program would that they could then patent the innovation from. It's like, you know, there's not going to be any breakthrough in like history or or English or anything that they can like, you know, then go forth and get their return on investments from. I guess, yeah, ever since Marx came out with historical materialism, we've not been able to find any more compelling narratives of history. (laughs) 
<laughs> much to our detriment um but uh but but i think that there's also there's also a sort of like larger thing going on here which is the neoliberal university as an institution in and of itself um and and i know dennis you've written a lot about this and especially like me and tom have talked a lot about it in the past few weeks specifically the role that student debt has played in how not just in how universities achieve revenue but the social function of student debt to basically put family obligation put obligations back onto families student debt is not something that you can shed in bankruptcy it is often something that then gets like spread out through a family kin network and a lot of this is like this a lot of this is ideological um and we've talked a lot about that before it goes back to something called like the poor law tradition um but this you know this was kind of devised by neoliberal thinkers like milton friedman who thought that like the liberalization of credit would be the best way to uh open up the university to all kinds of students after they had already done this in the 60s in the fortis university so i guess like you know, how how does this my question is for Dennis, but for any of you, uh, how, how does this fit into like what we're seeing like nationwide right now? Like what what is you know, what is the neoliberal university? What what is it? What are some of the like demands and imperatives placed upon it that it then feels like it has to do this? Yeah, so there's there's a lot there and I'll try to, to address as much as I can, you know, with the caveat that I'm going to produce some stuff that I remember. And uh, if I had time to like write it all out, it might be slightly more accurate. And so what I'll say first is, you know, I really recommend folks read um, Tressie McMillan Cotton on this stuff, Sarah Goldrick Rabb uh, and Chris Newfield, all of whom have taken on this question of like how the student debt um, crisis was produced and why college is so expensive and who it benefits. And so I'll try to like reproduce whatever I can from, you know, my reading of, of those folks and others. But, you know, this really does start in the 70s when um, the federal government decides that it's going to start um, making student loans much more available to students um, as a replacement, basically, for directly funding universities as a way to push the responsibility for um, for funding their educations back onto individual students. Um, and so, this has kind of two effects, right? One, it makes students more indebted um, so that they ultimately uh, are the ones who bear the costs and not society as a whole. Uh, as individuals, they bear the cost, right? That's what makes it neoliberal, right? We're pushing right. social costs onto individuals. Right. Um, it also means that uh, the colleges get paid up front and that it's the, it's the feds who pay them, right? So the colleges see the money immediately and the students are the ones who are, you know, paying for a lifetime of like the money that the colleges got guaranteed from the federal government on day one. Uh, as a result, you know, state universities start raising tuition. This is this is um, kind of the story of how tuition starts going up in the 80s um, because students have access to credit so they can pay more. State legislatures see that and they say, hey, look, the university is generating all this money so we can actually reduce appropriations. And that's when you go into this sort of like, appropriations death spiral, um, yeah. which then unfolds over the last 30 or 40 years, which produces this idea 
that, you know, and, and education is not unique in this. We're starting to do it to all of our public services. Think of the postal service, right? This idea that something that is a fundamentally a public service should turn a profit. And so that's why, you know, you start to see the these these fantasies about like we should invest only in things that we can monetize, right? We should invest only in STEM because um, you know that's going to produce revenue for the state or for the university so that we can be less dependent. Um, this idea that like the really successful flagships are going to operate functionally like private schools with their own endowments and their own donor networks. Um, all of this is 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 a, kind of a result of that idea. Um, you know, and 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 kind of in true sort of like plutocratic fashion, one of the ways that this is being accomplished is that anything that is a stock of like public value is now being offered up to various capitalists who are attempting to sell the idea of profitability, right? So right. that you know, give me your public dollars for my ed tech venture, and I'm going to save you all this money that you don't have to then pay to teachers, which will give you, which will free up your money to invest in some program that you think is going to generate a jillion dollar copyright. You know, but as 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 Chris Newfield says, um, when I, you know when I was talking to him about this for the article, you know, these strategies, everybody's doing them, right? It's like, it's like. It's like me being like, I know a really great idea for me to make money. I'll start a successful podcast. Well, like, great. You know, like, unfortunately, the Trillbillies already exists, you know, so there's not <laughs> that much more room in uh, the podcast world for like really successful ones. Um, and yet everybody's going to try it. And, and, and in the meantime, they're rating the things that are really valuable that are cheap, right? Like whether it's the folklore program at Western Kentucky or the puppetry program at WVU, which has been, you know, held up as like this punching bag, like, oh, you know, kids paying a million dollars to study pu puppetry. It's like, all right, but you know what? Like, it is one of the best in the country. It didn't get built overnight. It operates on pennies compared to, you know, what it costs to operate real, um, like, giant scientific research. And, and also, just, you made it cost that much. <laughs> right. Right, exactly, right. And so, And so the last thing I'll say here really quickly is, you know, when Republicans attack the cost of college as a pretext to defund it, right? The reason that that attack works is because college does cost too much. And it's because we as a society have decided to make it as expensive as possible for individuals, which has the effect of forcing them to only get themselves educated in things that they think is going to generate an immediate return. Education doesn't have to cost that much if we you know, would socially fund it the way that it deserves to with something like the billion dollar budget surplus that, you know, Bethany mentioned at the top of the episode. And so when you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, who's really like at the forefront of doing this ideological warfare, he's pumping money into Florida's public universities, right? He's not defunding them because he understands that they are and like they are potentially useful as an ideological tool. And so, you know, the, the like so-called war on woke is uh is like a is a defunding strategy for certain subjects. But, you know, there is a difference, I'd say, right, between somebody like DeSantis, who's willing to spend public money to achieve fascist ends. And, you know, folks like the West Virginia delegates who are like, oh, yeah, like, well, we're willing to go along with this if it saves us money that we can then use somewhere else. And it also eliminates stuff that we already dislike. Well, the whole trend Dennis just explained, I've seen exactly that play out here at WVU, where 
ever since the year that Gordon Gee became WVU's president, enrollment started going down. <laughs> and I know from talking to West Virginians that enrollment's down because people can't afford college. Yeah. Like when I worked at Goodwill, I was talking to my coworkers, uh, getting to know them. I asked uh, who were college students and they laughed at me. They were like, college is for rich people. What are you talking about? Um, but then Gordon Gee, Rob Alsop, uh, some of our politicians go to the media and say that the reason enrollment is down is because uh, the universities are taken over by liberal professors. Right. <laughs> that, that, that it doesn't reflect the community. That's something Gee keeps saying. Does like yeah. it doesn't reflect the community. Like we're finally listening to the needs of the community. It's like, what community are you talking about? Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Um, yeah, well said, everybody. And I'll just I'll just add one more thing beyond this the surplus that Bethany brought up. Right? Uh, you have there. You know, I always try and focus on the few good ones we have left. So in our district up here in Morgantown, we have Evan Hansen. He put forth a bill to just bail us out. Forty five million. Boom. Of course, it goes nowhere. There's other good delegates too. Like from my hometown district, we got Sean Hornbuckle now first black minority leader in the history of the state. Of course, there's only a handful of Democrats in, you know, the House of Delegates now. But uh, we used to have Danielle Walker. Now, of course, she's head of the ACLU of West Virginia. But we've got a lot of good ones and they have been fighting for a long time. But beyond that um, ability to just bail us out that they refuse to do, you have to understand it. And I'm, I'm bad with numbers, um, but maybe Dennis can speak to this. You know, like we have the WVU Foundation here. Everybody knows about the foundation. Everybody gives to the foundation. And I think starting in 2005, that's when the legislature first started letting WVU invest in itself through the foundation. And right now, I believe the foundation holds $184 million in reserve. This would be what other universities call a reserve fund, if I can, you know, if I'm understanding it correctly. So is it not only is the legislature refusing to bail us out, our own quote unquote foundation, right. which is just another scam, in my opinion. Uh, to to you know fill the pockets of the very rich and powerful at WVU, while this idea of you know us liberal professors <laughs> you know taking over is hilarious because I I took a pay cut from my community college in Chicago to come back and teach here in 2011. Um, what what you get hired at as an assistant professor at WVU is not where <laughs> you know where these tuition increases are coming from. So it's I feel like we could be bailed out on many fronts. I'd love to hear them defend the 184 million in the WVU foundation fund and why, why we can't use that to save our, you know, status, our students, people who want to tell stories, people who want to do puppets, people who want to study world languages and linguistics. I mean, yeah, it's, it's something. Is the, uh, is the foundation their endowment? Is it the same thing? That's a great question. I wish I understood WVU's financials more, but, you know, we've already established the Reynolds Hall, Robert Reynolds. Yeah. We've also got people like Bray Carey on the board of governors. You got people like Charles Capito. Um, you know, that name sounds familiar, of course, because of Shelley Moore Capito. I mean, right. the, the you know, and, and Bray Carey is a former senior advisor to justice. Justice just appointed Robert Reynolds. You know, I don't, I don't even think people know that every board of governors member in the state of West Virginia is appointed directly by Jim Justice. So... Close That's why we have they're all working together. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Include including who, Tom? Baby dog. 
<laughs> baby dog. Yeah, baby baby dog. dog on the board of WVU. Yeah, maybe honorary. <laughs> honorary member, I think. Or just baby dog's backside, maybe. <laughs> baby dog sees her shadow this winter. It's uh yeah, it's another program cut. <laughs> just uh just going off of that, uh, tying this all in sort of full circle, the the chairperson of the board is Tanya Willis Miller, who works for Jackson Kelly, the law firm that famously, uh, you know, sort of influenced John, Johns Hopkins doctors to to lie before the court uh, on on uh, black, lung? black lung. Yeah, on the validity of coal miners uh, black lung cases the uh, about 20 years ago or so. Wow. So thank you, Christian. And let's also not forget who sat on the board of Massey Cole with yeah. Don Blankenship all those years. And that was Gordon Gee himself. And in fact, most people don't know he was even a member and maybe even chair of the safety commission. Yeah. I didn't Massey know Cole. that. He resigned <laughs> one year before upper big branch, you know, where 29 miners died in 2010, but he, I think at least two miners died while he was on the safety commission. Um, you know, he's who is this asshole? I, yeah. I saw that, that I, I read in, I think it was Maya's piece. Yeah. She wrote um, his expense report at OSU. Okay. You mentioned that Dennis, his bow tie expenses. Um, when he was president at Brown, the university spent $3 million renovating his home under his supervision as chancellor at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt spent $6 million renovating the mansion where he lived. Um, what? Wait, well, hold on a second. So this guy's been at, at all those places. It was the chancellor at Vanderbilt? Yeah, and he was at Brown. He was at OSU. That explains the bow tie thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like a hired killer. Another yeah. thing about Gordon Gee, do y'all remember the University of Austin? I'm saying that in quotes. Yes. Yes. Uh, Barry he Weiss. He was on the board there. <laughs> yeah. And Barry Weiss. He still is. Still is on the board there. That's oh, like, I thought that whole thing closed down. Wow. Oh, maybe so. Maybe the so. audacity of this motherfucker to like walk around campus and like try to appear as someone who is like friendly with the students and he's ingratiating himself with everybody and like, we're we're, we're a happy community here. Yeah. What, what's that christian literally like goes out to the bars shows up at, at, at house parties I, I had friends in undergraduate that he, he like just showed up at their house party and took selfies his big thing was oh let's take a selfie that sort of thing like it's really sick really fucking twisted shit it is. yeah that's when you get him hopped up on some bathtub gin and ride on him when he passes out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jackson kelly since they came up uh are also the bond council for West Virginia University. So all those bonds that uh, the school has been issuing over the last decade, Jackson Kelly has been the ones who's been working on them to ensure the compliance, you know, render legal opinions, that kind of thing, which, you know, I'm not an expert in finance by any means, um, but I assume that they do not offer their services for free. Exactly. Um, doesn't that make you think that if we, obviously the state's going to do nothing, uh, but if a federal audit of some sort were to come down on WVU's financial portfolio for the last several years, surely, I mean, all these things we're talking about would amount to something, do you think? I mean, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I think I think that I would say that the most interesting reading that I've done as far as the financial situation is concerned is uh, contained in the audit from Fitch reports. They're the um, credit rating agency 
they're the ones who actually go through um, the disclosures and kind of render an opinion on the credit worthiness of an institution. Um, and, you know, some, someone told me, cause I was kind of asking around to friends of mine who understand this stuff a little better as I was trying to make sense of it, you know, that if Fitch has not downgraded its bond rating for West Virginia, that's not actually a reflection of the fact that the school is not in financial trouble. It's a reflection of their assessment of the school's willingness to do whatever it takes yeah. to fill, to plug the hole, you know? Yep. And so I, 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 I could share that link with folks. Um, but it's, 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 it's enlightening reading, you know, from a very dispassionate perspective. And what's the job of Fitch? You know, they're the ones who, who make sure that uh, investors can invest knowing they're going to get their money. So, you know, when, when, we pay bond, when we pay bondholders back on the backs of cuts, what we're really saying is, you know, and it, what we're really saying is that the most important thing is that the people who signed up to buy these bonds, right, the creditors, the, 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 the funds, the banks, who lent the capital, they have to get paid back first, right? It's yeah. not about the students. It's not about the, the folks who we're employing. It's not about the programs. It's not about what an institution like this means to the people of West Virginia, to the generations of folks who study there. It's about, you know, some people gave us money and the number one thing, our number one priority is to make sure they get their money back in full with interest. You know, yeah. I think that's perverse. Um, Gordon Gee, he would say, right, President is like a politician. President of the university is like a politician. So all that investment in, you know, renovating his house and funding his bow ties, you know, that's really investment in the university. Because how would it look, you know, if if the president, who's really the figurehead and the leader, you know, was allowed to live in like a little hovel? You know, he has to maintain that cult of personality because that's something that he sells, right? To the board. Yeah, yeah, he's so concerned about reflecting the community. That's it's so right. funny I that mean, a guy that, that has a bow tie budget is grandstanding about reflecting the community. <laughs> you guys all wear bow ties down there, right? Everybody in West Virginia, big bow tie. Traditional attire. Yeah. I guess this is why he bills Reynolds Hall as like a creative hub. It's like in their minds, it's like you can't just go out there and say that like business is a management of power relations and in capitalism like it is basically ways to exert power over people and like squeeze constituencies as, out of as much surplus as possible it's like no you got to get creative about it and come up with different ways to like lie about what it is that you do and uh so i guess that makes sense why he says it's creative i think that the great gift that we all have is the fact that we are individuals. And I think that all too often, I, and I say this particularly to our students here at the university, that many times they spend a lot of their energy trying to look and act like each other. Each of them are individuals. And you know, one of the great characteristics, I think, of the American psyche has always been that they have a habit of the heart, which to Tocqueville said they have this kind of sense of individuality. And I think that uh, the future of many of us is going to be celebrating that individuality. A, a final thing, you know, I, we're, we're coming up on an hour here. Um, I kind of wanted to touch on some of the specifics of the cuts they proposed. Um, one of which is that they proposed cuts to the math program, which I find very interesting. And I've tried to like, like reason through this in my mind. And like the best I can come up with is that like, okay, so yes, these are ideological cuts. Like a lot of these people are kind of drinking from the same trough as like Ronald Reagan and everybody who got really freaked out after LBJ's opening and, you know, the Fordists opening up of education 
and you know allowed a lot of like students in the 60s and 70s to be like fuck the system like we're not going to contribute to the imperialist war machine and anti-communism so a lot of them are they are ideological in that sense that they're like we got to get rid of humanities but maybe so so if that is the same thing being applied here plus the kind of like like we said the crisis induced like sort of budgetary concerns it's like, why are they going after math? And it's like, what the best thing I can come up with is that like math, math, mathematics is an abstract uh, exercise. It's an abstract and like it's an exercise in abstract thinking and and uh, sort of abstract deduction. Um, and so maybe that could be part of it. It's like maybe they have com- decided that like to be able to participate in STEM, uh, everything from physics to chem- uh, chemistry to, um, er- you know, finding out all the latest in like pharmaceutical, whatever, like maybe or or DOD uh, contracts, like figuring out how to use AI to like strafe, uh, you know, Yemeni villages or whatever. Maybe they've decided that like they know everything they know about like math and they don't need to like pursue any more like de- cutting edge developments. We're, we're at peak math. We're peak math. <laughs> well, <laughs> They're keeping the undergrad math, and I think that they're trying to get people, like grad students, to go into engineering or something instead of just math. Like they think mm. that learning for learning's sake is a waste of money. Like everything has to have an applied dimension yeah. to it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it's all it is just totally geared towards application. I mean, I like this past year working with with kids at, at UHS here in town, like the only way that they th- that they thought about their degree was was what they would do when they graduate. Right. And I would always I would always say, OK, well, that's that's cool. But like, what do you want to learn? Right. And that was never really like they would sort of have an idea. But the main driver is is that application. And so if you I think if you were to go to someone like a high school kid right now and say, well, you know, do you want to major in math? They would say, well, sure, I need to know math. But but just so I can be a chemical engineer, right? Right. um, Mathematics as a field is, like you said, it's sort of closer to philosophy uh, than a lot of people give it credit for, I think. And and that's part of it. And yeah, they're eliminating the graduate programs in math. uh, And and that's who teaches all of the math classes. I mean, one of the things that we pointed out in, uh, or one of the things that the math department pointed out was they they sort of ran the numbers on class sizes after if, if these cuts go through without any of the graduate um, students to teach classes and the smallest class they could come up with was 75 kids and they said that the majority would be over 100. How do you and that's you know one of our driving questions in the union in in terms of trying to generate the right conversations and get people to ask the right questions is. Gordon Gee claims he wants to bolster engineering and neuroscience, two that he specifically talks about. How do you do that if if all of your kids when in those programs are learning math in these massive lecture halls and have no one-on-one connections with faculty whatsoever? It's totally I I don't know what to say about it. Um, um it's it's illogical. I mean, they they could have just sort of gone on totally with what RPK completely with no input, which is sort of a theory I've heard floating around. I, I don't know. Um, that's what it seems like with that, though. Yeah, I think it gets at a contradiction that you mentioned in your piece, Dennis, that if you're cutting all these grad programs, who is going to teach undergrad? You know, like this... Bethany, go ahead. Oh, I have an answer. It's um, they're going to contract out 
undergrad classes to private companies. <laughs> it really seems that way. It's all to please big tech. And I've got, you know, some insight on this too, because I'm of course in the English department. And so, you know, we have a PhD, we have an MA, we have an MFA. Um, they have to, when they come here and get on their roughly $16,000 a year stipend to be GTAs here, they have to teach two sections of freshman composition every semester, not just one, like most graduate programs in creative writing, but two. So even if you just go with our little MFA program, which admits nine students per year, it's very competitive. We have 27 in total because it's a three-year program. Those 27 students teaching two sections of English 101 and 102 for semester, per semester, as Christian said, you know, I'm not a math person, but that's just completely illogical. There is no one left to teach. And so then the next theory is, well, they're going to erase the requirement. Students don't need to take English 101 and 102. Why would they need to communicate and write effectively and think critically? Right. And so that they'll just keep chipping away and keep chipping away. Um, and that doesn't make any sense. And that goes into when you start chipping away at those sort of um, academic basics like math and, and English, then that's when you start to get into like, well, the WVU degree now means absolutely nothing compared to what it used to. Um, um, and, and starts to really just look like a joke if you went to this, this school. And, and I guess a lot of people would say, okay, well, well, people have literally said this to me on campus. Okay. We'll just don't pay to go to school here. But like we pointed out earlier, I mean, this university means so much to so many. I mean, there was nowhere else I was going to go. It's just, it's a family tradition. Grew up going to sports games, bled blue and gold my whole life, all that type of shit. And, and there is nowhere else for some, some people to go. This was the yeah. only place I could go. This, this, this is supposed to be sort of the lifeline for kids in West Virginia to get a, 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 an education that's on par with other larger states land grants, you know, places like Ohio state, Penn state surrounding, surrounding places like, like that. Um, and it just, it just destroys it all. It, and so it affects anybody who went to or goes to WVU, no matter what your degree is in, because it's going to start to look like a joke. I think their goal is to turn WVU into a very highly specified vocational training so that, it's like de-skilling people. It's like um, the middle and lower working class kids that go to the public schools will be more easily replaceable when they work. Well, and it's it's like the fact that Gordon Gee is on the board of University of Austin. It's like these people do see a value in some level of humanities, but it's like just to be able to have the freedom to say that like race science is real. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's just like, there's no like, okay, they do. They, yeah, they agree that like, yeah, but and I think that's partially because like the elite, they don't want their kids to grow up in that kind of like educational vacuum. Like the elite teach their, their kids and like, you know, they raise them in the classics and humanities and everything. Right. It's yeah, no, that's right. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, you know, this is the they're turning they're turning a liberal arts education back into a status object that's really yes. only available to yes. the, the, the you know, the children of the wealthiest. Um, and, you know, like like Bethany said, right, they're taking away that ability for folks from other backgrounds to be able to actually study something that, you know, would expand their minds and not just their ability to you know, get get a job right out of college. There's more going on here too, right? 
when you take away the math PhD program, what you actually say is we're giving up on the idea that anybody like at WVU is going to do high level mathematics that would change the field, right? right? We're giving up on that. What we have a math department to do is to teach kids just enough math that they can go into engineering, right? And, and, and take that vocational training. It's also a way, right? When, and, and I'm not against, you know, people thinking about how they're going to use their educations into in their careers. You know, I don't think that um, technical or trade or vocational schools uh, are bad by any means, you know, and I think that um, there's plenty of ways to think about like a an higher education being an ecosystem that has a variety of different opportunities for folks to study different things in different ways. But when you take, when you turn the, the, the flagship right into the technical school or the vocational school, there's no other place for that stuff to go except out of state. There's no other place for it to be except in private hands. Um, and, 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 and then even then, you know, we've given up on the idea that like your employer pays to train you, right? Employers are like, no, all education must be vocational education because like, don't expect us to teach you what you need to do to work here. You go pay for it yourself, learn it yourself. And when we decide that your qualifications are outdated and the economy's moved on, then, you know, you can go back to school and get into more debt to get a second degree. Cause like we have given up on training you. Gwen, I just wanted to ask, what's the, how many kids, how many students are in a, in a creative writing or in a, in a freshman composition section? Used to be 20, then they upped the cap to 22. Now 24, I believe as of this year. Um, again, these are the incremental changes. Now, you know, I, I uh, my colleagues are so good at playing the game and we're all doing these appeals hearings in front of members of the board and others, our date for English and, you know, not having to cut 10 full-time faculty members as well as the entire MFA program is on the 30th. So that's Wednesday. And, you know, I think that some things that my colleagues are going to be offering up is to raise those limits even more. We'll teach, you mm -hmm. know, please, please just don't do this. And we'll teach 40, you know, we'll teach 70, like Christian was talking about. They're willing but to give so much uh, just to hang on to jobs and, and, but, you know, think about it the way it already is, right? 24 students, let's say they're in States and they pay $9,000 a year. So they're paying like $1,200 a credit, right? Which a lot of students are, are paying out of state. So $1,200 a credit, 24 students in a, in a class, two sections. You're talking about each TA is bringing in over $50,000 a semester in tuition revenue, making 8,000 of that 42,000 or more being pocketed, right? If you just want to do like a basic calculate the rate of exploitation. So I think the key here is that they have already, they're already getting a bargain by like underpaying people, hyper exploiting people, yeah. keeping folks precarious. The idea that there's like more savings to be found in instruction is totally bogus. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're acting like there are more, say, you know, each department who's under threat, you must come to this hearing, you must show us how you can generate more revenue. And we're sitting here like, we already generate revenue. World Languages generates revenue. English department generates revenue. As Dennis just pointed out, what a bargain to get these GTAs coming in here every year and being paid a wage, which qualifies them for SNAP benefits to teach, you know, all these, you know, they, they want to know about FTE, full-time enrollment. How many asses do we have in the chairs? Well, we've got them and we keep putting more in and we don't pay anyone to teach them and still it's not enough. So yeah, it's really a bad deal. Yeah. It seems like decades, you know, like a decades long process of, uh, you know, of stripping these institutions down to this 
to this point has created the perfect scenario, the sort of perfect terrain for the sort of the culture war things that we were talking about earlier for the reactionary, uh, you know, attack on uh, queer and trans people for this moral panic about CRT uh, because it, it has placed these institutions at a crisis point. It then uses that crisis point to then, you know, explode outwards all of these other moral panics about these other things. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's I think I think that that's a fascinating thing. It's not even just higher education. It's like sort of all levels of education. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, there's they're kind of like old canard, you know, about like, you know, canaries in the coal mine. Obviously, that it's sort of doubly true here. Uh, as you said, Dennis, this doesn't mean that it, it will happen everywhere, but it definitely can. And, you know, as we've seen with Appalachia, with West Virginia in eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee and other places that like a lot of general trends you see, you know, will start in these areas uh, because, you know, social um, conditions are so deracinated. So you know, they're sort of sort of like unequal and and working conditions are so bad as well and uh and so i don't know it, it just kind of creates a, a sort of like perfect storm of of a sort of laboratory for those types of experiments and um and so i but i think that that just goes to um sort of it just goes to magnify how important it is what you you guys are doing on campus to sort of push back against this and to highlight this and to show a lot you know what the contradictions here are and how we are all at risk of this in one way or another and um so yeah so thanks for you know coming on to talk about that and for uh you know showing us what to do and how to better employ those uh, things in our wherever else we go whatever universities you know and uh you know just want to encourage you to keep keep up the fight i think that it's can't be easy you know what i mean it's very it's easier for me to sit here on a podcast maybe you know um if they're outsourcing um instruction to other places maybe me and tom can get like a we can set up our own like prager u llc <laughs> thing and then like before long we can be your instructors <laughs> just before you stop recording i'd like to encourage anyone listening to contact um West Virginia's senators and Congress people uh, call them and specifically say that you're calling to oppose WVU's program and budget cuts. And uh, WVU people join the student or the workers union and keep sending emails to the administrators. I was going to say contact the board of governors too. Um, and and you, you kind of have to search to find their emails they they distribute supposedly distribute emails through this one person uh um on the board uh but you know email tanya willis miller uh at her her jackson kelly uh email address call them put pressure on let them know you're watching stuff like that that's really what we're what we're just trying to do right now so that we can save as many jobs and programs as we possibly can uh the board vote is on it's on the 15th it's in two or three weeks. So like, this is sort of a critical moment in terms of uh, applying pressure 
to get them to do the right thing. So please do, if you're listening, contact those people. It really is timely. Uh, as Christian says, you know, time is of the essence because of the September 14th and 15th, two days that the board will be meeting. You know, I don't hold a lot of illusions that our legislators or, or board members will listen. But I think what what Bethany and Christian are pointing out is definitely important. All kinds of little things can accumulate. You know, like I just saw this letter um, from the deputy. Uh, her name is Dr. Cindy Blanco. She is the um deputy director deputy editor of learning content at duolingo and she has sent a, a scathing letter to the university you know kind of outraged that they would suggest that an app like duolingo could uh, could <laughs> replace this you know and this is uh, someone very high up at duolingo who yeah. got into this you know so even people in the corporate world you know she she has her masters in slavic languages you know what i mean which is dead in the water here uh, you'll have a faculty member who teaches Slavic languages here, uh, Lisa de Bartolomeo, who's very outspoken right now, because what does she have to lose? You know, yeah. her job's done. She was born and raised in this area. Her parents went to school here. You know, there's a lot of us like that. So I think we have to combine the financial audit with our personal stories, with, you know, things like unlikely bedfellows like Duolingo saying this is outrageous, you know, yeah. that to, to kind of come with a multi-headed approach. Um, but certainly the head of the serpent needs to be cut off here. I mean, the, you know, Guy has got to go. Um, yeah, I think that her, the Duolingo um, pushback against this gets at something that's very interesting, which is that even the people who develop these apps realize that like education and learning isn't just something that you do in a vacuum. Generally, it has to be a social uh, experience. And universities themselves are they have to be social experiences like students, faculty, everyone should have a say in how the whole thing is run, because generally, if you are learning something, that should be a community process. And again, it kind of gets at the sort of inherent contradiction or the sort of um, hypocrisy of Guy saying that, like, oh, this is this doesn't mirror the community. It's like you you have no sense of community. You, your entire career has been going from place to place and having community play, pay for your fucking mansions and houses and stuff. And then run you out of town. He was he was run out of, of Vanderbilt, Brown and, and Ohio State. I mean, yep. you know. I think that's right. You know, I mean, only for all the talk of we got to run the, the university like a business. Like, remember, he came in in 2014. Every all this stuff was his doing right. This expansion plan, this we're going to enroll 40,000 students. This we're going to pile on, you know, five hundred million dollars of debt. We're going to do we're going to explore all these tech partnerships like this was his plan. His plan failed. He put his institution in financial jeopardy and now they're going to hand him the reins to fix it. Right. In the corporate world, if you bankrupt your company, you're out. <laughs> you know, they're going to bring somebody else to do in the restructuring. Right. Yeah. Only only in academia. Does it turn out the professors lose their jobs, but the administrators get to fix it? So he's now come up with a second plan, right, which is just as bad as the first plan and is also going to be just as big of a disaster. Exactly. And I got to say one more thing because I keep forgetting. And that is, you know, what we're what we talked about earlier, uh, you know, Dennis's point just right now about, you know, culpability as a leader is, you know, is incredibly obvious. But even beyond that, um, you know, one thing that's being kept really quiet, and it's all part of this like two tier societal thing we have going on, where, as you all talked about earlier, where the elite will get to take what they want and the, you know, the working class slash middle class will get to take these courses. Um, 
there's a two-tier thing going on where there's the reason West Virginia campus workers cannot grow like we need to. It's there's a lot of reasons, but one thing is they're being so hush hush about all the staff firings. You know, all you hear about are faculty firings, mm-hmm. and oh my God, even tenured people can be. You know, there's no. We're trying to have a wall-to-wall union, but there's there's a big wedge between staff and faculty. And but the thing that can really get rid of that wedge is the fact that hey, 130 some staff have already been laid off, and you don't hear shit about that. Yeah. And believe me, there's a lot more fixing to be laid off. And one of my good friends, I I asked him, hey, you want me to see if Trill Billy's wants you to, <laughs> you know, because he's staff. And he knows he's gone, but he, for various reasons, he, you know, there's a lot of fear. People don't want to, people don't want to make, you know, they think maybe I can hang on to my job, you know? So, but that's a big point that needs to get made is that this isn't just faculty. This is everybody. I mean, this is classified staff, non-classified staff. Everybody's getting, getting chopped. Well, is there any final thoughts? Anybody wanted to, uh, anything, anyone wanted to add to, uh, to close out, to kind of put a sort of bow on this. I mean, uh, Dennis, you, you've got an article that's about to come out in The Baffler about this. I've read it. It's very good. And so when that comes out, we will sh- alert our uh, listeners to it. And then as Bethany pointed out, and Christian, there are people who you can contact about this. And maybe we can put some of those contacts in the show notes, uh, Glenn, you have sent me quite a, a few articles here. We can put those in the show notes as well. I think that's all very helpful. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so like, as you said, Glenn, time is kind of of the F- essence. You've got this meeting in mid September, so that's coming up. So people definitely can, uh, plug into this. Um, and is there, is there anything you all wanted to plug before we, before we sign off here? I just well, want to say I, thanks. Thank you, Trillbillies, very much for doing what you do. Um, uh, you know my thanks to the students. So as I said, we'll follow you all anywhere. Let's get let's not allow them to create wedges. And then, Dennis, thanks for writing pieces like you do. And this one I'm looking forward to in The Baffler because I have noticed I've been interviewed by Washington Post. I've been interviewed by Wall Street Journal, you know, and then they, they either don't use anything I say or they use like one little quote. So there's really a, a failure on the part of mainstream journalism to do much more, except for a few, you know, examples yeah. that we talked about. But for the most part, our major outlets seem to be just parodying the numbers that the administration is putting out. This only affects 2% of our population. This only, you know, that's bullshit. Yeah. Those numbers are so fudged because they only count majors. They don't count double majors. You know, all that stuff is is bad data Um, yeah well they have no framework for understanding this i think that this is why you have to have a kind of like long durée a sort of like secular understanding of like how we've got here um and like you said dennis you've uh you've written a lot about this you quoted some other writers to check out i think tracy mcmillan cotton was one of them i've been reading a book called um family values i sent it to you earlier dennis uh between neoliberalism and the new social conservatism by melinda cooper that has an entire chapter about just about the sort of um the role that family as an ideology plays in uh the liberalization of credit and the ideologies around the university and how it has been um sort of uh, as an institution 
beyond just like higher learning that is that has become a site of so much of our society's externalities and it's like i said earlier it's a crisis point it's a place it's a place that right right wingers will exploit to then further their own social agenda and so again that just speaks to the need the greater need to what you all are doing and we thank you very much for that um so and so thank you all for coming on the show uh thanks yeah it's fun it's great it's been a great panel i uh thank you yeah. Thank and, you. Uh, thanks. Thank and, you. Thanks for having um, me. People can follow West Virginia United Student Union on uh, Instagram and Twitter for updates. Perfect. I will put that in the show notes as well. Um, so thank you all for listening. You can go check us out on Patreon. You can support further panels and, and interviews and uh, inane discussions uh, like, you know, not like this one. This one's not inane, but Tom and I have quite a few inane discussions. So please go to Patreon and support us there www.patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. And, um, you know, continue to listen, spread among your friends, and uh, keep fighting the good fight, guys. Mm-hmm.